Hi everyone, uh, this is my podcast on lottery and how it relates to new liberalism. Uh, have you ever noticed how much you see a large lottery winning in traditional new media? Even if it's not in your state, province, or country. With legal gambling exploding in popularity recently, it has seemingly reached an apex in popular culture, especially during the pandemic and years afterwards. This has occurred at such a crazy rate that even ironic memes are developing around gambling or gaming, such as 99.9% of gamblers or gambling addicts quit right before they hit it big. And while this is obviously just a joke centered around, you know, the apparent futility of gambling and then, you know, the house always wins, I still find the topic fascinating in relation to the neoliberal world we find ourselves in today. Because in the neoliberal Garden of Eden, so to speak, the world is a meritocracy. Which is to say that if you didn't achieve your dreams of, you know, being rich or whatever you define success as, it's entirely your fault, and you should have, you know, pulled harder on your bootstraps or, you know, your sneakers in, in modern times. Since we've all come to see that the world we inhabit is steeped, soaked, fried, cooked, chopped, whatever, in neoliberalism, the idea of gambling, specifically lotteries for the case of this podcast, seems to be antithetical to the beliefs of merit within neoliberalism. The idea of somebody winning millions of dollars out of sheer luck on an investment comparable to to, in price to a meal at McDonald's, doesn't really align with the core tenets of, of neoliberalism of you working for and earning what you deserve, you know, your success and, and fail, or your failure were your own cross to bear. Yet, as this podcast will come to show you, the practice of lotteries is actually more related to neoliberalism than you may think in winning, but especially in losing. A key reason as to why lotteries work is the idea that anybody regardless of background, can achieve a ludicrous sum of money in one fell swoop, turning the American or Canadian dream, whatever, into their own reality. In researching this for this uh, podcast, a, spe- a specific case in regards to how lobbies advertise themselves, whether public or private, astounded me for the wrong reasons. For example, the Illinois Lottery Commission, which is a lottery operated by the state, had put up a billboard stating, this could be your ticket out, in a, quote, blighted neighborhood, uh, their words, obviously. I don't think I need to explain the incredibly taunting nature or, and, you know, the care-on-the-stick, you know, nature of that ad. Other examples, the state of Ohio hiring a marketing company to promote their new Super Lotto game, and in internal discussions said that their advertisements should, quote, run along the same time a month as the payment of government payments, paychecks, and Social Security. And these are just uh, uh, very select few examples of lotteries knowing their most avid consumers. And this is the, you know, state governments, by the way, you know, the, the governments that should be interested, uh, first of all, in public good. But again, these are just examples of uh, lotto companies uh, knowing their most avid consumers. You don't believe this happens? Well, let's get into the numbers, uh, no pun intended. According to one report, of lottery sales come from a mere 5% of players. And considering about 50% of the U.S. adult population plays the lottery, that basically breaks down to more than 50% of who pays into the lottery comes from only around uh, 2.5% of the U.S. population. And so this is where the idea that the lottery is nothing more than a tax on the poor comes from. Because like a casino, the house, you know, a state, province, country even, you know, a corporation always wins, winning being, you know, earning more money than they give out, like any any good business. So letting some poor person win, 
have their money taxed immediately before it's even given to them, and then have them most more than likely spend all of it in a few years, you know, further taxes on every item that they subsequently purchase, is really just a slam dunk. So the majority of this billion-dollar cash flow, and a billion with a B, comes from the poor, racialized, and addicted people. Uh, the flow and the cash flows to already private wealthy corporations and or various levels of government. So having said all of that, the elephant in the room, the hypocrisy or two faces of neoliberalism in the relation in relation to the lottery should become apparent. On the one hand, information provided above uh, information provided shows that the private and public world are very well aware of the lottery's detrimental effects on select groups of the population, making it harder for them to achieve the status of a stable, you know, homo economicus. This means that this group of already racialized people have to keep relying on what little social security is left that hasn't been cut on the public level, in tandem with a job ideally, to stave off homelessness, never mind living comfort. On the other hand, the fact is, is that n- the neoliberalists stress personal moderation or responsibility, which addiction to lottery seems to be the opposite of. And uh, David Theo Goldberg explains how neoliberalism interacts and interacted with the race, uh, noting increasing stress on individualized merit and ability in the name of racelessness. So on that note of neoliberalism interacting with race and the lottery, I think it would help everyone's understanding of these topics uh, by, compa- uh, by comparing it to another vice that is not shamed, and is in fact very openly and proudly advertised. Alcohol. Now don't shut this off, let me explain. <laughs> yes, obviously alcohol addiction ruins individuals' health uh, and the lives uh, of the circle of individuals they like and love. Furthermore, approximately 10% of the US population are considered alcoholics, which is contrasted by the percentage of Average income lottery addicts, 1.7%. Lower income lottery addicts, 2.6%. And lastly, those that make less than $15,000 a year, making up uh, 2.8% in comparison to the amount of people making ten to fifteen, making 100000 to 150000 having an addiction rate of one2 to the lottery. And like I said, both vices are openly and frequently promoted everywhere a, modern's person's, a modern person's eyes would be looking. And because both of these products are vices and are addictive and dangerous to one's health and well-being, both of their ads always either end with, or have a sentence, you know, in small print if it's um, a visual ad, uh, saying to, you know, playing, play or drink responsibly. This, now, this is something I personally found odd, and honestly, funny, uh, where an ad for the lottery will show you, you know, sports car, a mansion, big boat parking to a lake house dock with... You know, cartoon bags of money out of out of Looney Tunes asking, What would you do if you won the Lotto six forty nine twenty million dollar lottery? Loudly and you know, with passion and vigor, followed by a meek finale of with booze advertising ending in a similar manner. That last meek and you know, half hearted sentence at the end, your limit, uh, is incredibly neoliberal. Because again it again stresses personal responsibility. And lastly, the fact that neoliberalism presents the advertisement viewer with a suggestion that you should drink or gamble, but then uh, showing that there's a moral superiority or sense of rightness with doing so in moderation over not doing it at all or too much.
So because moderation in these activities is apotheosized, and the fact that a much smaller percentage of the population making over $100,000 are addicted to the lottery, the majority of whom are not racialized, the picture is then painted that the pinnacle of lifestyle is moderation, aka whiteness, and it can thus be achieved or uh, come, clo- come close to uh, through responsible you know, drinking or gambling in this case. So those percentage of lottery addicts that I mentioned er- uh, earlier obviously fall on class lines, but more specifically racial lines. The neoliberal alcohol and, policy- and lottery policymakers will of course put the onus on the individual to moderate or control themselves. And if and when that doesn't work, the dependence or addictions that arises uh, is the fault of the individual. So reflecting back to Goldberg's point of the higher amount of attention paid to individualized merit or responsibility towards the goal of racelessness, if you can become colorblind, quote-unquote, to the people that are negatively affected by any given issue or purposeful policy or advertising, you can then paint them and consequently, you know, to the benefit of uh, neoliberalists, you can paint them, you know, or their entire race, neighborhood, lifestyle, etc., the same, you know, blame brush of you should have done this differently, you should not have done that, you know, without having to analyze the historical and other reasons a person may find themselves in a situation, you know, like uh, like gambling addiction or lottery addiction, I should say. So to come back to the point of the ideal liberal citizen, there shouldn't really be distinctions like black, white, male, female, gay, straight, etc., just homo economicus or a good spender and consumer. So let's get, let's get big picture now, with a case from the Center for Moderation and Responsible Gambling, Las Vegas, Nevada. Just going to let that one sink in for a moment. Anyway, this section of the podcast uh, will use David Harvey's explanation of neoliberalism, uh, political economy, as a lens to observe. His explanation summarized neoliberalism as a theory that suggests human well-being is best advanced when entrepreneurial freedoms are maximized within an institutional framework characterized by private property rights, individual liberty, unencumbered markets, and free trade. So the role of the state is to create and preserve an institutional framework appropriate to such practices. So basically, the state needs to make the boxing ring, uh, to provide the boxing ring, and remove everything but the mat and the ropes, including the referee in a lot of cases. So to highlight neoliberalism within the realm of political economy, I'll be discussing the state of Nevada's decades-long trial uh, and failure at implementing a state lottery. I can't wait for this one. You know, I'm sure, you know, it's a lovely state with fine people and, you know, lots of wholesome activity, but let's be honest, if you're traveling to Nevada, uh, you're probably going for the casino experience, its main tourist attraction. Like me, you probably also assumed that the state almost exclusively known for the gaming industry would also support and welcome a lottery. Well, you'd be very wrong. A state-run lottery has been attempted for decades now, yet has been shut down every single time, and it's unlikely, honestly, to be established in the lifetime of anybody listening to this. As you could probably guess, privately owned casinos and their lobbying power are the main and usually only opponents to a state lottery. So this, this answer may shock you. Sorry for the clickbait or listen bait. Basically, the casino saw the state lottery as quote-unquote direct competition to the established gaming or casino industry and would constitute, quote-unquote, as they put it, moral impropriety in a town affectionately known, affectionately known as Sin City because it would be pitting the private market versus the public one, or a public one. So here's a jolly quote from the casino lobby. 
To begin, we believe that a lottery put the state of Nevada in the gambling business, paying the state against its largest private employer, largest property taxpayer, and largest purchase purchaser of goods and services. So this goes to show that, despite what private entities may say about wanting free markets and that competition and corporate Darwinism uh, is good, they really may not mean it. And it soon becomes clear that not all competition is created is created and treated as equal in the neoliberal view. And any mere suggestion of a competition deemed unfair man will be shut down as you know quickly as possible. But how do they shut it down? Well, as you can probably surmise, gambling in Las Vegas alone is a billion-dollar industry. And as such, they have incredibly lobbying power. And they obviously know how to use it. Fun fact. In states where lotteries came before casinos, casino proprietors seek to convince the state that the games benefit one another. While in Nevada, where casinos came before lotteries, the same, these same casino proprietors argue that a state-run lottery would be an unfair competitor. It may, come as, it may or may not come as a shock to you to learn that many of the casino owners in, in Las Vegas actually have casinos in other cities in the U.S. where lotteries are allowed, and no casinos have been shuttered due to a state-owned lottery, proving that it's you know really only greed keeping, keeping the casinos as the only game in town. Uh, you know, that pun was intended. Now, what I believe to be the most interesting part of this whole discussion is the reason why casinos and lotteries can survive and make good money despite the fact they seemingly compete against each other, aka how both the public and private can take part in the financial exploitation of the poor and racialized. What was fascinating for me to learn is that generally, casinos are a more white-collar form of gambling, whereas lottery tickets are you know, more blue or no-collar even forms of gambling. And this can be seen, you know, even in the obvious, right? That you know, casinos cost money to get to. Uh, you're waging more playing games. You're going to buy food and dinner and drinks there at at the casino because it's an experience and it's advertised as such. Whereas lottery tickets are, you know, incredibly cheap and found in, you know, I think primarily they're bought in you know gas stations, convenience stores, uh, etc. So remember earlier how I brought up the, the, the discrepancy in salaries um, equating the likelihood of gambling addiction? So it all comes full circle. Oftentimes, casinos, even outside of Vegas, uh, are seen as a, network, networking, as a spot for networking among businessmen akin to the golf course and thus not a place to you know, get rich and change your life. Excuse me. However, it's more fun and it feels like skills required to play and win at games you know, like poker or blackjack. Furthermore, when you think of a casino patron, the first image that comes to mind is probably a thought of, you know, James Bond, or a white, handsome, heterosexual man with expensive glass of booze and a cigar. So what does this tell you? Well, to me, it further shows Goldberg, proves Goldberg's theory about racialization in neoliberalism. How every man wants to be that, you know, James Bond type, drinking repeatedly, puffing a cigar, wearing a tux, not rented, you're a baller. And because that, and by extension whiteness, is glamorized in media, but the, uh, but the average lottery ticket buyer, probably a tradesperson or other labor that didn't necessarily require GED, likely a heavy drinker, not the fancy martini kind, pack-a-day smoker, not those classy cigars, that is overall irresponsible in nearly every measure of their life, and above all, a racialized individual. So I hope 
this comparison shows how neoliberalism plays into both extreme racialization on the individual level and also political economy on the larger scale. And uh, a final and more sobering fact about the lottery is the sad reality of what happened to the majority of lottery winners. Though it is somewhat disputed, there is a statistic saying that approximately 70% of all lottery lottery winners will end up broke or bankrupt within 3-5 to five years of winning, uh, if they're not killed or robbed of their, of their money. This can be largely attributed to the fact that someone with little to no money to be responsible, responsible over anyway, before winning, that receives millions of dollars out of the blue, uh, is not conducive with being financially responsible overnight. This fact reminds me of a quote from the show Atlanta by Donald Glover, which is amazing, that says, poor people don't have time for investments or financial responsibility because poor people are too busy trying not to be poor. So the fact of generational generational poverty and low wage work without unions, minimal support and education among a myriad of other issues, many of which can be traced back to neoliberalism, leaves the racialized person without financial education. So long podcast short, rich white people likely won't have to ever worry about seeing a racialized person at their country club. Thanks for listening.